It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia! A quick friendly reminder, your free trial to that subscription you signed up for might be ending. Don't forget to update. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ragnar. Thanks for joining us, Ragnar. Ragnar and KJ were teachers together in Japan. Ragnar is currently selling houses in the New Orleans area. Feel free to give him a call if you are thinking of buying or selling your house. Ragnar also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to 1928. The first transatlantic flight is made, the yo-yo is invented, and the movie The Jazz Singer ends the era of silent film the year before. But today, we're not talking about a talkie. We're talking about Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. Carl Theodore Dreyer is also known for Gertrude and Ordette and was very, very busy leading up to 1928 and would work on six or seven films a year. Other big movies in 1928 include Steamboat Willie starring Mickey Mouse and The Farmer's Wife. Tom, tell us about The Passion of Joan of Arc. Okay, The Passion of Joan of Arc, it was Dreyer's film. He was invited to make a biopic of one of three French women, uh, Catherine de Medici, Joan of Arc, or uh, Marie Antoinette, and he chose this. And this film follows the trial and execution of Joan of Arc by the, the French and British authorities, uh, really the kind of like British and Burgundian authorities. And we see the remarkable performance by um, Renee uh, Falconetti, as she portrays Joan almost entirely in close-up. This film is a collection of close-ups of different people um, looking down upon her, accusing her, and her looking up, tearful, um, seeking some sort of redress or salvation within this this heinous circumstance. And uh, yeah, the the I've loved this movie since I was a teenager. And I, I haven't seen it in a number of years. And, you know, just, um, you know, when, when going through kind of some, some rough stuff in my life, watched it again recently and was just kind of, you know, <laughs> crying my eyes out. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think that kind of effective response to this movie, um, that, that kind of purging, that cathartic purging is, um, is, is what this film kind of inspires in in people through the years since 1928 and i i really can't say enough about this movie and about how much it's meant to me when i was when i was younger and and now as well nick if you only had one word to describe this film what would you use eyes kj persecution ragnar passion and my word, it was going to be AIs, but I'm going to say faces to create variety. It's time for question one. What are the two major paper documents that appear in the film? Locked in. Locked in. 
locked in. All right, Ragnar, what do you have? Okay, so the two important documents would be the, the minutes of the trial, which is introduced at the very, very beginning. And then I went for the, the confession letter. I also had the confession letter, um, but the other document I had was the one from the quote unquote king. It's the one that the uh, one of the priests tries to use to put pressure on Joan, but then she's like, I can't read. And he's like, oh, I went through a lot of trouble to get this to look right. Um, so that the letter from the uh, quote unquote king. So after hearing everyone else, I realized there were four documents. So the ones I was going to lock in on, because that's how this game works, is the actual journal and the confession, which is the same as Ragnar. There also was, as KJ mentioned, the one from the forgery from the king. But the other one that was not mentioned was also the parchment or the paper above Joan of Arc as she is being burned at the stake. But again, I don't know which was your magic too, but the ones I locked in were, were the same as Ragnar. All right. I'm going to give points to everyone since it's my magic too and then you know it's it's somewhat subjective though nick beautiful answer with the uh with the paper on the top i didn't think of that excellent excellent I, ah that made me so happy um the, the two i was thinking of which i think are principally important and speak to my, my own kind of hypothesis of the film the the hypothesis i kind of want to unpack with you guys is what what ragnar and nick said which is the minutes of the trial as well as the confession letter that that uh Joan or Shen, as, as it's pronounced in French, um, says towards the, uh, uh, signs rather, towards the, the last third of the, the picture. Um, so I, I just want to say, so this is my kind of reading of these documents. The film opens with a, a text scroll, and then we see the actual minutes. I believe those are the real minutes of the Joan of Arc trial being opened and, and looked through, which had only been at that point re, um, released recently. Uh, and then later in the film, the most important thing seems to be that message that says, you know, I confess to my sins, which was written to look like the exact message that actually uh, Joan had signed. Um, my reading of this movie is that the the kind of the materiality of history, right? The history we understand as these documents, as these things that are, are textual, that we can hold, that we can feel, that have a certain texture to them, that what Dreyer is doing, despite his kind of claims of, of realism, which are BS, right? I mean, this film is not realistic, is that the the kind of the material is being substituted by the faces and by the affect, by the emotions of the characters. And I, I haven't quite worked through all of this. And I just wanted to bring this at the beginning of this podcast, because that's kind of my reading, kind of what I'm working with. I wonder, wondered what you guys thought. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that because the movie starts off with just the minutes, which is just a piece of paper and it can be very compelling, I'm sure, but it, very flat, literally. Um, so his goal, <laughs> I his goal, I imagine, was how do I make people feel this this paper? How do I make them feel this history? And it's not about plot. 
It's not about what happens. It's about who it happens to. And so he puts us right there with the faces, you know, that's what I love about this film because, you know, nowadays through the internet and all this stuff, we lose that face-to-face -face interaction. And, and I think compassion comes through the eyes when we see the person's face and what they're going through. That's how we relate to them visually. So by him putting her face up there and us being face-to-face -face with her for the whole movie, seeing her cry and delirious and be broken, it's the best way for us to, to realize it's not just history. It's not just legends and stories, but it's real people with real emotion. Yeah, I'm imagining Zoom right now adding the emotion filter where the camera zooms in on your eyes. If you want to have an emotional meeting, it's a little it just, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Ragnar's using fingers to show tears coming out. Um, the, the other thing, that opening scroll with saying, oh, these are based on real minutes. Um, I heard the, I think it's Law and Order, bum, bum. This isn't true of that. <laughs> so yeah. it, yeah, it yeah, didn't yeah. quite prepare me for what was about to come, but it it definitely um it, it also helps you realize it's grounded. But then like you everybody's saying, we're gonna say this a million times, the the faces and the emotion, the 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 persecution she goes through, uh, you know, the, the, the their faces up high, her face kind of low, looking up. And and you know that they're they're asking questions just to catch her in a lie so that they can just destroy any value, any perceived value that she thinks she has, other people think she that other people think she might have. Um, it, it was so uncomfortable. It was really well done. Talking about things that we may repeat over and over on this episode. I think we're my read is we're all gonna be gushing over this movie pretty much throughout this episode. So I'm I'm gonna be bold and and throw that out there. But talking about reading a journal or notes of a trial, that could be really boring. That could really be mundane. And in addition to the visual, which we will probably talk to great length about, hence my words started with eyes to discuss this, but I'm not going to go there right now. I'm actually going to go more with the soundtrack. Uh, I, I listened to or saw the, the version and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was Einhorn was the composer. Yeah, that Richard Einhorn. Mm -hmm. That was amazing tool to keep the suspense through the full, I think it was hour and 21 minute runtime. I couldn't believe how much I was vested in this. And all we're really seeing is very close up views of the actress who was spectacular and the actors. And somehow the way that score was done kept you engaged even in scenes that would have been a little bit more mundane or she's just lying there after she fainted you're still in it the whole time like it's it's, it's almost like a weight you're bearing the weight with her through this whole thing it's an hour and 21 minutes but it's i don't want to say agonizing because that sounds negative but you feel the pain and agony that she's going through during that whole period of time so yes they found a way or the director found a way to make a reading of a journal about a trial really engaging. Yeah, I, and I, I, I felt the same way, Nick. It is, she is in a, a kind of a state of, of agony and you, you feel that too. And I think that the, the, one of the problems I had trying to come up with questions for this is that so much of this movie is about the endurance of agony. It's not about these, these facts. There's not a lot of facts that happen in this movie. There is a very traditional five-act structure that corresponds to, to the real length. It's a, a five-reeler. 
Um, but th those actions aren't particularly pronounced. It's about affect. It's about the, the, the weight of these circumstances upon the innocent. It's time for question two. What is the one question that is repeated to Joan during the trial? Locked in? Yeah, locked in. Most likely locked in. All right, Ragnar, since you are most likely locked in, you get to go first. So she's definitely asked a lot of questions, uh, obviously, it's a trial. Um, but I think the one that they keep asking her is if she believes God has chosen her, that she has, that she's in communication directly with God, um, and therefore has no need for the church uh, instead of the devil or something like that. So I think that's the question. They ask it in different ways, but I would say, in effect, does she believe that God speaks to her directly? I had, um, are you a daughter of God? All right. Thank you, KJ. And so points go to no one. <laughs> there, okay, there is one tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, sure. There, there is one question that is literally repeated, and that is, are you in a state of grace? Now, the, the reason for this is, this is actually kind of historically interesting, is that this was, this was specifically designed to trap Joan. And it is, uh, if you say, no, I'm not in a state of grace, then you, you're not in God's God's dominion under God's light, serving God. If you say you are in a state of grace, what that means is you um, you know who God is saving and who isn't. God isn't saving, which is heretical. So either yes or no condemn you. Now what Joan does in, in the movie is she says, um, I hope I'm in a state of grace, but only God knows, right? She's sort of I don't want to say dodges the question because it's not really a dodge, but circumvents. She, yeah. Yeah. She, no, she well, dodges she, it because she says that. And then she says, if I'm not in God's grace, I hope he's getting me there. It, yeah, it's a give but, unto Caesar what Caesar. It's a, it's a very dodgy way to. Well, I'll ask you, why is it dodgy? Because she didn't answer the question. She, she gave a few hypotheticals. And I, I think she did the right thing. I don't think it was dodgy. I don't think it was dodgy. She dodged the question. Because if if we assume that she's dodging the question, then I think she, we put in her mind that she's she's playing the game. That she's like, okay, I think they're trying to screw me over here, so I'm going to. I think she was she's so religious and faithful that she would not assume to know what God is thinking. So she cannot say, oh yes, I am in, in a state of grace, but but. She won't say it because only God can make that decision. So she says, if I am, I hope I stay there. If I'm not, I hope one day I, I can be. The reason I blurted in circumvent was that she, I felt she's navigating the question, but I don't think it was in, in a, a blatant attempt to dodge, as you're saying. She, she said what she truly believed, which fortunately did dance around the question that she didn't fall into their trap. Yeah, I think she truly believes it, just like Jesus, I guess, truly believed, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God. But did she do that for any other question? Right? This was the only one where she kind of gave a not straight answer, right? 
but there there isn't a straight answer and i think this is where the the difference of sensibilities comes into effect right so there is a very legalistic very Thomistic sensibility from our our members of the the you know our, our interrogators and so the head interrogator is uh um the the judge uh played by pierre gauchon and he's the, the big guy with the real like big wart on his <laughs> on his head and his cheek um he has this sort of legalistic understanding of of um how we process and implement god's rule on earth right which is catholicism it is a it's not exactly as legalistic as judaism but it is a it is a fairly dense legal religion um and what we see with the illiterate Joan is a, a different kind of um, different kind of position vis-a-vis knowledge, right? She, she, I don't think is dodging the question. I don't think she's necessarily, as you said, Ragnar, playing the game, right? She's not working within this system. She is somebody whose knowledge is drawn from her kind of emotional availability towards God, and that's why I think that the like um I, I hope i'm in a state of grace comes from really this kind of almost hallucinatory beautiful personal tearful experience and not from a, a kind of uh, uh reading of the medieval scholars and the, the deductions that lead you to an understanding of god and the trinity etc joan is pretty consistent in her responses because they all leave it in god's hands almost all the questions or the answers to the questions lead to God has a way or God knows best or God, I'm in God's hand. There was one specific dialogue that I really enjoyed because they're saying pretty much does she know better than all these wise priests around us? And she literally says they're wise, but God is wiser still. So even then it's always back to God's got it under control. And again, you literally have the works in mysterious ways line dropped in here too. So I, that's why I thought it was more consistent. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, that the, um, I, I think we have a conflict of types of wisdom going on in this movie. Yeah, I guess she, she does um, give, I, I want to say the other ones are wishy-washy. I think they're more clever compared to the, 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 the grace one. Um, but I guess I, I, I am approaching this, uh, I'll say, with an engineer brain, whereas it sounds like you guys are um, <laughs> approaching this with a more faith-based, uh, you know, you're, you're either assuming she's connected to God or even if she's not, she believes she is. Yeah, I, I am making that assumption, and I think so is Dreyer, and I think so is Falconetti. And it's probably what makes the movie so good. I just don't have the... Um, Engineers' brains are very limited because of how logical and, and uh, <laughs> you know, we just, our creativity goes not very far uh, generally. So I, I, I think luckily I was able to feel that without knowing why. So that's really cool. I think that's a, a self-limiting prophecy you have there, KJ. Your stereotype of engineers being an engineer limits you. <laughs> I think you have the capacity. <laughs> it, it's it's conscientiousness versus openness, right? That's the, the personality traits. All right. We are all tied at one. 
and we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. See you in a moment. Glass. It both contains and reveals. Its beauty may be seen in the stained glass works of Louis Comfort Tiffany and in France's Chartres Cathedral. We look through glass to see the natural world beyond our home. We look through glass to see the amber glow of a cool beer or a smoky scotch. Some might say glass is the great mediator of all our visions. But if you're like me, glass has always been lacking in taste. Not style, but literal taste. When sipping a glass of water or licking your windows clean, I always think, wouldn't this be nicer with a hint of strawberry or a pop of citrus? Now with Stain's flavored glass, I can get just a little extra. Taste, that is. Stain's flavored glass comes in all types of forms, drinking glass, windows, and even mirrors. Not only will you get a sizzle of lemon, orange, or pineapple when you have a drink, you can have the same sensation if you kiss or lick your mirror, windows, or even your skylight. Get your glass needs filled at Stain's Flavored Glass, where taste is tasty. And we're back. Before we turn it back over to Tom to complete round two, Ragnar, we ask each one of our guests a critical question. If you could watch The Passion of Joan of Arc with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Great question. And I put some thought into this. And instead of going for a kind of famous person or celebrity, I decided to take a page from this movie and, and do something more personal, more close to, to my heart. And I would pick uh, my father. Um, and the reason I would pick my father is because throughout my whole life, I have not been religious. And my father has been very religious, um, not not to the point of any kind of oppression or you know any any kind of conflict between us. Just something that he takes a lot of great satisfaction from it. And at times I've come to almost uh, envy that uh, because he sees something and feels something that um, that I seem to be missing out on at times. And so when I see a powerful movie like that, where I can relate to someone religious, um, like, I, like I related with Jean, um, it, it, it feels, I feel like it brings me closer to my father and to see this with, with, with him would be great. So I could ask him about how he feels about what she's going through and how it's impacting someone who is very religious. Do you think he would enjoy it? Is he a movie guy like you, Ragnar? He is. Um, he, he's the guy that brought the, my passions for movie uh, into my life. And, you know, we, we went to see a movie at least once or twice every weekend when I was growing up. So that's where I get my passion from. I, I, think, I think ultimately he might not like the movie because he's a little bit ADD and he likes the kind of like flashing lights and action. But I think every once in a while he connects with the movie that he normally wouldn't like. 
And I think this could be one of them because of the subject matter and the compassion that's on the screen and the religious uh, parts of it. And just to uh, to bring it back to season one, does he have a favorite snack? I'd be curious what uh, Mr. Carlson's <laughs> favorite snack is there. He he doesn't have a favorite snack, but he has favorite. He's a weirdo in this sense. He likes anything crunchy, and he'll dip it in whatever he's drinking. Oh. I mean, it oh. does not matter. He could be chewing chips, and then he he could be having a beer or yeah, something chips like that. And and beer. Dip yeah, oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> Very strange. Fair Very enough. Strange. Well, if you think about yeah. it, they end up in the same place. <laughs> it all mixes yeah. up together. Yeah, I I want the inside of my mouth to feel like the inside of my stomach. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly think it's his ADD. Like he's so like hyperactive that even his the flavor uh, taste buds are hyperactive. Like let's mix that and and this. Mm -hmm. Let's see what happens, you know. And uh, <laughs> so I think that's where it comes from. I think that's a great answer. And interestingly enough, even with me, I think my love of movies comes from my father's love of movies. He didn't necessarily watch all these award-winning, wonderful movies that Tom would bring to our attention just a variety of different action adventure all over the place war movies your standard run-of-the-mill movies star wars indiana jones this is where why i love all these films how about you guys what was your influence into how you got into movies yeah it was my dad too my dad actually briefly trained at nyu i think for filmmaking and i i believe he's never told me about this um, but my, my brother found out about it somehow. I believe my father made a short movie at NYU, a short film, um, which I've not seen. I don't know where it is. My, my father is a photographer and he had at one point aspirations of moving from photography into cinematography, which, you know, so he, he went, I think he took a class at NYU and, and um, you know, had, had stopped after, after that class, but that's where I got it. And he used to record from, HBO on on video cassettes all of these films and so we just had this I don't know where these I, I think they got thrown out um, but uh, as VCRs became entirely obsolete but growing up we had this enormous collection of these HBO taped films um, and so every kind of great movie I grew up with starts with the, like the whole box <laughs> office thing coming in and declaring itself it's time for question three. After the trial, Joan's hair is cut away. What is intercut with the scene of her hair being shaved? Locked in. Locked in? Locked in. I'm sorry, Ragnar. Your lack of confidence has inspired me to pick you first. What do you have? So the hair cutting scene is, it could be my favorite shot of the movie. Um, I think it's an amazing scene, seeing her broken, you know, and just her hair being cut away. Um, and I guess I love this so much, I completely forgot what it was uh, intersected with. But if I have to guess, um, or at least an educated guess would be the gathering of people. I remember uh, like almost like a festival atmosphere happening outside, like a contortionist and then like a, a, a people getting together. So that would be my answer. I also don't remember, but um, 
you know, for pub trivia, there's a few rule of thumbs. When you know, if, if the if the guy says what American author, blah 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 blah, and you don't know, you say Walt Whitman, because that's probably the answer. Or uh, maybe they anyway. Um, so I, I'm going to make a new rule of thumb. If somebody asks a Catholic question, you don't know the answer. Rosemary. They cut to somebody, uh, you know, praying the rosemary breed, the rosemary beads there. The the rosary, the rosemary, <laughs> the rosemary. Rosemary is a spice. I thought someone was cooking. <laughs> the, um, it's been I, a while praying, since Casey used praying the rosemary. over rosemary. Did he lose a point for that one? <laughs> <laughs> it was rosemary doing the rosary. There we go. Mm-hmm. Kind of like uh, Molly doing the Macarena, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we have Rosemary from KJ. Nick, what do you have? No, Rosemary Beads. Rosemary Beads. <laughs> rosemary Beads. Which, you know? I, I'm sorry that just sounds so dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Catholics. Yeah, we, 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 Freud was right. The repressed will return. <laughs> but repressed. what do you have, Nick? There was some kind of carnival freak show going on during that scene. And there was a contortionist. There was a gentleman who was like a, a sword swallower. So there was some kind of freak show carnival scene going on. All right. And the points go to Nick and Ragnar. Very nice. Yes. In this scene where uh, Joan has had her head shaved, we see what appears to be some sort of circus-like performers. There's a big wheel there's a contortionist, there's a sword swallower. Um, and I found this, this intercutting really interesting and really compelling. And I, I wanted to just bring it out there and talk about it. What do you think that scene was doing for this picture? So, you know, I thought it was an interesting combo as well. I think they were gathering because they knew, I thought it was something related to the trial. They knew they were gonna see something and it got me to think, okay, well, they know they're gonna see a trial, maybe something worse. Uh, sadly, ultimately they, they were correct. And they were running to see it. They were rushing, tripping over themselves to go see someone in, 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 in terrible pain and misery, which makes you think, oh, these people are, are, are horrible. And, but then, you know, then I thought, well, here I am, you know, watching this watching her misery and, and excited about not only that, but afterwards I'm gonna go talk about it. Um, so I kind of felt like one of those uh, festival goers getting ready to go see her trial and didn't make me feel great. After hearing Ragnar's explanation, it made me realize that she was just another attraction for the townsfolk. So kind of went full circle there. <laughs> She was just another one of these things for them to view. There's not a lot of entertainment, I guess, during that period of time. Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah, uh, public torture was sometimes required, but often something to do. My particular reading of it, I, I'm trying to relate it back to my kind of reading of the movie, my hypothesis, which is this, this idea of materiality versus affect. And it seems that there is a a sort of, dissolving of um of maybe sense or sensibility at that point you know you you have this woman who's at that point signed a false confession right she's confessed quote unquote to um 
you know, to lying about being touched by Jesus and, and being given these visions. And her head is shaved as, as kind of a penance. And she is up to that point freed from torture and freed from execution. Um, and, and her head is being shaved, uh, you know, as after she has signed that. And then we cut to these, these distortions. And it, it's bizarre because you begin to realize how much of this movie isn't actually realistic. Um, it's very, very slight, but uh, a lot of times when we're, we're shooting Falconetti or shooting um, uh, her talking to um, the judge, Pierre, Pierre Gauchon, uh, the way they look doesn't line up. So she'll like look to the right and he'll look uh, to the left, things like that, which which seems to be intentional from Dreyer. He does it all the time. He purposely violates sight lines. And as the I think the movie comes along or goes along, the 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 kind of realism of the movie gets more and more dissolved. You know what I mean? It's like stirring sugar into water. It just it just eventually parts away from something we can see and identify as sugar and just goes everywhere, becomes unidentifiable. And I think at this point, when she's been forced to lie and she's being humiliated by being, having her head shaved, which Falconetti's head was really shaved. She begged Dreyer not to do that, but it was. Um, I think then you see the, the sort of, uh, the contortionist and the circus people, the, the kind of, um, the absurdist, public display that often accompanies circuses, right? Circuses are sort of absurd. They're not narratival. They're, they're demonstrations of pure performance and sometimes grotesque performance. We so see the, the contortionist is sort of grotesque. His body moves in a way it shouldn't move. And I think this is the point, um, you know, where she can no longer take it, right? She is, she is going to stop this and identify her fate as someone who's going to die for her beliefs. And at that point, we see the seams coming undone, right? And the realism of the piece is finally surrendered. It's time for question four. What does the crowd do when Joan is burned? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Ragnar, your writing has always forced me to, to choose you first. So what do you have? Well, the crowd, uh, they, when they see her burning, they cry and they yell and they riot. Um, you know, I think one woman in particular yells, you're burning a saint or you burnt a saint. Uh, and then that led to a lot of uh, chaos. Yeah, um, kind of what Ragnar is saying, they, they turn on the clergy. Right, they're on her side. They're not on the clergy side. They're um, against the clergy. They turn on the clergy. The townsfolk rebel, and there is a riot, and they are driven out of the, I don't want to say castle, fortress, whatever town, whatever the fortified area is there. All right, thank you. And points for everyone. So it, there was a riot, and uh, uh, we actually do have a tie, so don't worry, I have a bonus question that will definitely decide things. Um, but let's talk about that end before we jump into bonus, if that's okay. Um, I love that ending. I love the way the riot is filmed. 
it's bizarre it's expressionistic i think it is i think it is the ultimate surrender of historical like material historical accounts right uh, historical materialism that's the term excuse me where um history is determined by the materials in play in the economic circumstances i think that ride is like the the absolute negation of that in part because first of all historically it never happened so dreyer despite hiring a historian having this pretense <laughs> of we're going to follow the record and i i follow the record having a text scroll saying he followed the record and just followed the record <laughs> spending seven million francs building one of the most um, accurate sets at that time in spite of not showing it almost at all in the film um at he ends the movie with a riot that is not that did not happen in history. So what do we make of that? I was waiting for the engineer's perspective <laughs> on this one. Um, so were we, was that supposed to represent us, right? After going through this trial with Joan, we're, I mean, certainly I was not pro-clergy at that point. I was on Joan's side. So is this giving the audience a chance to um, release their frustration and anger? at what happened to Joan? Is that part of what the riot gives us the, the, the would Pat Gavin say the catharsis? Is that the right word there to use? Catharsis, yeah, yeah. Aristotle said it before him, but yeah, Pat Gavin, <laughs> our former <laughs> guest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think so. Um, I, I think th there's something interesting and um, th this relates actually a little bit to uh, the, the Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which, in which Tarantino rewrites the history of Sharon Tate and, and the, uh, the Manson murders because he goes, I don't like the way history happened. So I reject that historical narrative and make my own. One that is, that is kinder. It's odd because Tarantino is actually far kinder than actual history uh, in that film. And I think the, this movie... And I think that riot, KJ, kind of, kind of speaking from your perspective or, or from what I can tell from your perspective, is a, a rejection of historical truth for the history we want and need. As a viewer, I felt that that ending, the whole sequence, both the riot and the burning, which was absolutely brutal, uh, was just such a punch in the gut because the whole movie... Yes, it does get a little bit, the camera angles will strange and everything, but it's very uh, conservative compared to the chaos at the end. So it, just the whole movie, you feel like there's the spring tightening, it's getting more tense, more tense, and then it just literally goes up in flames. And it's just so, so impactful when a movie just makes you wait for it. And then it hits you with some kind of action, not that that's action, but some kind of kinetic energy is from a viewer's perspective, it, it knocked me off my off my seat. I mean, it was just amazing. I'm glad Ragnar just brought up the actual burning at the stake scene. I knew she was going to be burned at the stake, but I was really curious back in 1928 with technology as it was, how are they going to depict this? And I think they did an amazing job with the smoke, looking at the logs, the, the way they overlaid where her silhouette was. It, it was really well done. It wasn't, you didn't need CGI or anything crazy, melting faces and skin and hair on. It still portrayed that and then some. So I was 
more focused on that, believe it or not, than the riot. The riot was the 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 side, I don't know, piece for me of interest, you know, whereas the main event was how they were portraying the burning at the stake. I thought that was a fantastic end. Yeah, I agree, Nick. That is that that's absolutely gorgeous. And it's it's amazing. She becomes and, and that piece of paper you mentioned too, Nick, at the beginning that that hangs there and kind of does it it doesn't survive, right? It also burns away. It burns, burns away, yeah. It burns. But as as we're watching her kind of suffer there, it becomes more and more blurry. She she as a person becomes more and more distant, like her face. We only, I think, have one actual mid shot of her. Everything else in this movie is is her face. And at that point, we get more and more distance from her face via the smoke. The smoke kind of mediates, and we lose the the person of Joan of Arc. And now she's kind of passing into legend, right? Passing into sainthood, um, which is she became. She was canonized, I think, in 1920. Uh, and yeah, Nick, I I I completely agree that that is such a overpowering experience even in the beginning of that scene where you can see the flames or you can visualize the flames like going up her legs and all that and the agony on her face there's a shot where you just see the agony on her face i mean you're there and all i could think of that is a horrible way to go i mean there's a lot of ways to go but you are experiencing it you are uh, ever just burn your hand get a real bad burn on your hand or somewhere on your body just a little bit your whole body is going to be engulfed in these flames and the smoke oh horrible way to, I mean, go. to think about like the the person you see at the beginning of the film this young lady wide-eyed small you know but full of passion and then what you see at the end like you said the silhouette burning in the flames was so affecting and to see her from the beginning to the end is just how, how do you how do you I mean the story is well known everyone knows she burned at the stake so how do you make this impactful and props to the, the director I mean clearly this film is you know, what almost a hundred years old now and it's still as affecting as it was the day it came out yeah and it, it connects the title the title now has meaning right it's the the passion of the Christ is the the execution of Jesus. And she now shares that kind of um, that kind of space with Christ, which a lot of kind of mystical experiences are about. Mystical experiences, there's a variety of them, but some of them are the actual embodiment of of the experience of Christ or or Mary or a saint, something like that. And her um, her knowledge that is beyond this world now becomes purely embodied. She, she experiences a, a Christ-like death, right? She experiences her own passion. And in so having that experience, she passes from, from this material world. She passes from um, us being able to know her at all. Now, Tom, how can we conclude this episode with such a strong passion ending with a wonderful bonus question? Well, my friends, this is a... The price is right question. And everyone is free to play, except KJ. And here we go. No, KJ, you could you could play. <laughs> I don't think you'll win, but that's okay. Wow. <laughs> well, you KJ, it's it's so the score right now is Ragnar three, Nick three, KJ two. Uh, it's close. No. no. What is it? Three isn't five it, five. Isn't it five? It's what? Three oh. five five. 
355. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. It's time for a bonus question. Most Hollywood films in the silent era had on average somewhere between 500 and 1,000 cuts, including intertitles. Price is right rules. How many cuts does Dreyer's film use? Locked in. Including intertitles. Yeah, I want to be last. Okay. Locked in. Yeah, but if you lock in, you can't change your number. That's true, but Tom did it in the last episode in Memories of Motsko. I did? That's not right. You did one more than Ryan. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. When you lock in, you have Look, to keep I, I, I'm honestly, a rag though, I wrote it down. Honestly, I did actually write that down. That was in oh, my did notes. You? Yeah. Okay. I, I got I it wrong. It. Ah. Yeah, I wrote it down here. I wrote it down. Let me see. <laughs> so not in, locked in. Okay, KJ, what do you have? I had 341. 341, you said. I did. Okay. And um Ragnar, you go next. This is a shot from full court in the dark. Uh 123. All right. And Nick, what do you have? I had 531. Wow. Nick is right. Like yeah. spot on, right? No, he's he he it's actually a terrible guess, but it's the least terrible <laughs> guess of all three of you. So I did I read the question correctly? The the average Hollywood film has somewhere between five hundred five hundred cuts, thousand. right? This film had oh. 1,517 cuts. I would have the much <laughs> It had so much more, which before we go into the discussion here, guess who wins this round? It is Nick. With 531 when it was supposed to be, what, 1,500? Yeah, you're, you were off by an order of two, but that's okay. Yeah. But I was less off than the rest of them. Yes, Nick, your victory is based on being less flawed than your flawed companions. <laughs> so let's let's actually. I, I found this interesting. Um, the the way the film is edited together, and you know, we we've there's a lot of edits. There's a lot of jump cuts to um, um, different faces. There isn't any real investment in continuity. There's, I think, maybe 10 to 20 cuts in which we see one thing being held up and then included in the next cut. A lot of this is about juxtaposition, juxtaposing these faces uh, next to each other. And there's an extended quote I want to read, but I'm I'm not going to read it now because I just want to discuss this, this, this editing technique and how it made the movie feel. You felt like you were one of the people in the room because you had up close and personal view of everyone's details on their face. So you were you're actually closer to people than you would be if you were in the room next to them. You know, something about personal space. I guess these guys don't know about that, but it worked. It was so effective. And especially with our lead, Joan of Arc, I can't say enough how wonderful that actress portrayed that role just the sheer emotions portrayed by her eyes again going back to my word if you notice throughout the majority of the movie i was wondering why her eyes were so shocking and so revealing of her emotions she barely blinked later in the movie there's a few blinks and then she faints and her eyes close but 
for the beginning, I don't know if it was like 50 minutes or so. That's what was so compelling. But she, you, you saw in some scenes she was fighting the blink. It was so effective. Uh, but that's what I think. You felt like you were in the room with every single one of the 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 priests who were trying to corrupt the vision of what she was and the agony she was feeling and even the soldiers. You were there. I'm with Ragnar. Uh, this felt like it should have been a lower number. I, I believe you and I, I understand the number was high, but I felt like I was floating through this movie and I would have assumed that was because the lack of cuts. But... I guess there were so many that they were overwhelming and then made me feel like I was floating. I, I, I don't know. That's a, that's really strange. It's, it's probably the things that are being cut to are not very varied, right? So we're seeing the same few people over and over again. There were certain scenes, even with Joan of Arc, that if you look carefully, you could see that even though it looked like she was the same scene, there was something slightly askew with her face that they were cutting different pieces together. So I bet you there was a, a lot of that action. I also wonder how he cut it together. I mean, they're, they're, they're not necessarily speaking, so it doesn't matter if you use this shot or that shot or the order. And if you never see the background, you only see her face, I, I think it'd be very confusing as to which shots you should use for, for each next shot. I, I think the emotions do scribe a narrative, or script a narrative, rather. Scri script a narrative. Um, I, I do think we are watching a person um, move through, uh, you know, a real ordeal from kind of handling the trial to being terrified by the torture. I mean, she sees the torture implements, um, which are, that's an amazing bit of editing. When you see those like slight angled captures of the torture instruments, you're not quite sure how they work. They just seem like abstract art, but it causes her to faint. Um, from there to being compelled to, to lie, to, to finally surrendering. I think the, the emotional life that, that she brings is, is really specific. Um, and it does follow a five-act structure. And, you know, if you, if you look at it, you know, each reel ends up being kind of one act. Um, and it also, um, even though the real trial of Joan took about eight months, here it, it takes one day. And so not only is... Um, is drier following the kind of classical French conventions of a five-act structure. You know, these were the, the classical rules from, from Louis the Sixteenth. It's actually following the Aristotelian unities of, of time, action, and place. It's, it's all happening in one place over 24 hours surrounding one, one action, you know, the, the trial of Joan of Arc. There's no side plots whatsoever. So, you know, in... in um, in spite of this seemingly like somewhat montage style editing, it actually has this classical, this French classical basis upon which it's resting. I, I, I will say this to bring us back. Religious movies are really, really hard to make. Movies that are often religious come off as kind of like Hallmarky or altar call-y. Um, they're like kind of sentimental Trek. I think, and actually, I'll recommend this other religious movie that's very different from this, but still a religious movie that's very good. Martin Scorsese's Kundun. If you've ever seen that, it's a great Martin Scorsese movie that I think like seven people have seen. And it's a great, great religious movie. But I, I kind of get it. Religious movies are really hard to make. I just wanted to, you know, before we go, share this, because I know how, how affecting the close-ups are. 
This is from um, Deleuze's uh, Cinema One, his book Cinema One from 1983. Uh, and this is what he writes. What is at stake here is not an object, nor even a partial object, but a particular function of framing, the cut and the shot that changes the entire film, for the affection image gives an effective reading of the whole film. On this account, there is no close-up of the face. The face is in itself close-up. The close-up is by itself face, and both are affect, affection image. Hence the opening dictum, the affection image is the close-up, and the close-up is the face. Again, there is no close-up of the face. The close-up is the face. We can then understand. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner in the most humble way possible, which is me, Nick. So, thanks. Yeah. yeah. On another note... <laughs> Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews, as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Do you think The Passion of Joan of Arc is about materiality or affect, and why? Leave a comment on our YouTube channel, and let's continue the conversation. Additionally, you can follow us on Twitter at Talking Studios. Thanks again, Ragnar, for joining us today. Where can people find you? You can find me on Facebook. Just search for Ragnar Carlson. And you can also find me on Instagram uh, with the handle Ragnar underscore K. And you can find me on Twitter at Thomas Lehman 15. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. Join us next time when we explore a guest choice with me, Nick, in the quizzer seat for Super Troopers from 2001. Should be a fun one. Talk to you then. Ding, 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 ding. Well, we get all the witty comments from at Thomas Lehman 15. 16. 15! Is it 15? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm bad at Twitter. Actually, actually, maybe a little... uh, Anyway, whatever. Because I, you know, I remember, um, does anybody know the movie Shoeshine? It was an Italian movie from the 50s. It's a Vittorio De Sica film. And uh, Pauline Kael, who's my goddess, um, you know, I pray to her every night, uh, wrote a review of it. Pauline Kael, K-A-E-L, was the reviewer at the New Yorker between the late 1960s and I think 1991 she retired. Um, I was trained by the person who trained her or taught trained jesus not a horse uh, you know like <laughs> i was trained by <laughs> yeah. the finest but um how old were they yeah. what'd you say they must have been old if they trained somebody who was doing reviews in the 50s yeah he, he just turned 70 i just said happy birthday to him. Oh. i was gonna say how old are you i'm like we're like the same yeah. age but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I need to TSA the mic. That's... I I don't want to know, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> the, the, the TS, the oh, TSA you mean like when airport. you go to the airport? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> KJ thought it was. Like, some... I, was I was. There's you know different words that fit the letter. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's dirty. Just you wish it wasn't. <laughs> the transit. 
I don't even know what the the transit secret authority. What is the S? Service authority? Oh, the maybe? transit service authority. I, I don't know. It's anyway. Um, <laughs> let's not get into the TSA. <laughs> I, I have thoughts, but uh, you know, we'll move on. 